EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by SQM. At SQM, we use scientist-led close digital monitoring of the local environment and collaboration with global sustainability experts to keep our lithium extraction processes green. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. President Putin's invasion of Ukraine has changed our security environment uh, for the long term. It's a new reality. It's a uh, it's a new normal, and NATO is responding for the long term. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Political Europe in Brussels, which more than ever today, Thursday, is a city of summits. I'm talking to you from the EU quarter in front of the European Council building, where EU leaders will meet later today with US President Joe Biden, and we'll also hear via video link from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. And you just heard the voice of NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg speaking after a summit of the alliance's leaders also here in Brussels, where Stoltenberg had his term extended by a year as NATO grapples with the war in Ukraine. And Stoltenberg also announced that leaders had agreed to bolster NATO's presence on its eastern flank. Leaders approved uh, our four new battlegroups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. These are in addition to the four already in the Baltic countries and Poland. So we have eight uh, multinational uh, NATO battlegroups uh, now. So the war very much front and centre of three summits here in Brussels today, NATO, the EU and also a meeting of the G7, the group of seven leading industrialised economies. Later in this podcast, you'll hear a voice from Ukraine, from renowned Ukrainian novelist and thinker Andrei Kurkov. But first, let's dig into some of the topics that the leaders are discussing today with our podcast panel. So on our podcast panel this week, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And also joining us this week, our senior trade correspondent based in Brussels, Barbara Moons. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Andrew. And we've brought you in partly to talk about sanctions, which is something you've been following closely. Uh, Sanctions against Russia, of course. The European Union has passed a series of packages of sanctions in in recent weeks, really with, you know, remarkable unity, remarkable speed, remarkable degree of, of agreement. But where do we stand now? There's been some talk of, you know, another round of sanctions 
What is your reporting? I know that you and our colleague Jacopo Baragazzi have been working hard on this, talking to diplomats. Where do things stand in terms of further sanctions? Yeah, we see that with this key week in Brussels with the European Council, NATO summit, um, Joe Biden coming into town, that there was a lot of expectations on whether or not to have another round of sanctions. But you see that with a number of countries, and it's a camp that is mostly led by Germany, has said that for now we should just take stock, close the loopholes, not go too much further. And this is really being condemned by another camp, mostly Poland, the Baltics, um, who condemn this sanction fatigue and say that we do not have the time to wait, and Ukraine especially does not have the time to wait for something else to happen to cause a sort of trigger for a next sanctions package. Right. I mean, and just reading your recent story with Jacopo, it's almost a kind of philosophical debate, right? You've got you've got one side saying we need to, you know, go to the max right now. We need to look at energy sanctions and what are we waiting for? And then you have another camp, as you say, um, most vocally led by Germany, saying we need to have some things in reserve here. Uh, and, you know, this is already bad, but it could get worse. And, uh, and, and sort of implying, I guess, that there there is some kind of potential deterrent effect by holding something in, in reserve. I mean, obviously, there's economic interests at stake on both sides here as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And one of the quotes that I found really telling was one senior diplomat saying, if not now, then when? You know, is this not bad enough, the situation on the ground in Ukraine? Which triggers should we have? Should it be chemical weapons, which has been said publicly, maybe even the use of, of targeted nuclear weapons, but also mass civilian deaths or attacks on, on humanitarian corridors? Right. Further, you know, uh, something I mean, we've already said, seen plenty of, you know, atrocities, outrages, but something that would kind of mobilize public opinion, if you like, and just create a kind of pressure that would be impossible to resist for further sanctions. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of this ethical dilemma, right? Do we just wait and sit back for things to get worse before we actually sanction Russia even further? Um, but that at this point, that is kind of, of the feeling that there is in Brussels. Of course, as everybody says, this can all change very, very rapidly. On Thursday, we have again Zelensky speaking to European leaders. As we know, last time that happened, that it led to a kind of emotional response from, from leaders um, or triggered a lot of emotions with leaders. So you never know what's going to happen. But at this point, that really seems that for now, it's stock taking, making sure that loopholes are closed and kind of wait and see what happens on the ground in Ukraine. And Matt, is that a view shared across the political spectrum in, in Germany, do you think? I think for the most part, I'm not really getting the sense that there's any real weight behind this view that Europe and the West should be doubling down on sanctions at this point because the opposition, the Linke, for example, the left party in Germany wants to go in the opposite direction. And the CDU, I think, is also a bit worried about the economic impact. So I think that on that point, there is broad consensus that it's probably wiser to let these sanctions take effect and regroup if something else happens. I mean, there is a view, though, by some people out of government, and in fact, a group of high-ranking former officials have signed this letter this week 
suggesting that now is the time to really push forward with sanctions before something else happens. And I think part of the reason for that is that there's no evidence in the past with Putin that he's really been dissuaded by existing sanctions. So it might be smarter at this stage before there's a chemical attack or before there's some use of tactical nuclear weapons and the kinds of things that people are talking about to really just uh, go full bore against him to try and change the dynamic to the degree possible. And that would include more weapons for Ukraine, uh, humanitarian corridors. There's even talk of this peacekeeping force. So, you know, all this stuff, I think, will depend probably on, on what Putin does in the coming days and weeks. Right. And we've also heard, I think it's quite interesting how, how blunt uh, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz was today in the Bundestag in terms of uh, pushing back against the call for an immediate ban on Russian energy imports. We know that Germany in particular uh, relies heavily on those. And he was really uh, warning of a European-wide recession if uh, measures like that were imposed. Yeah. Wir werden diese Abhängigkeit beenden, so schnell wie das nur irgend geht. Das aber von einem Tag auf den anderen zu tun, hieße, unser Land und ganz Europa in eine Rezession zu stürzen. Do you think that's pretty much a red line for Germany, that there are other things they are willing to consider, but this one is just a step too far? I think that's true for now, but I think that Germany is going to have to redraw its red lines, and we've already seen that in the last weeks, obviously, with the Zeitenwende, as they call it, this beginning of a new era in German defense policy with the commitment to spend $100 billion on defense in the coming years. And they've also done it in terms of the arms deliveries to Ukraine and on a number of other points. I think, though, that they are maybe a little bit slow to realize that this really is a new world and that if this situation isn't dealt with forcibly and quickly, a recession will be the least of Germany's worries. If I can just add on to that, I mean, obviously, Germany, because of its economic size, is is very important in this debate. But I just want to stress that it's not just Germany at this point that is opposing to go further in the sanctions. You see a lot of other countries who are very comfortably hiding behind Germany to make sure that their own economic uh, or national interests are not being attacked. Do you want to name any names, Barbara? Anybody who's keeping quiet in the background? No, I mean, you see, for example, Hungary... Bulgaria also, they've clearly stated they don't want to touch energy. You also see countries like Italy, Belgium, and others that are just much more careful and, and weighing these questions. So obviously, Germany, if it would shift, it would be a major game changer. But if you would have this group of, of more careful countries shifting or putting pressure on Germany, like we saw, for example, very clearly with SWIFT, when they were the only the only ones standing at a certain point. Yeah, the international payment system, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That could also really change the debate. But I think that's one of the interesting things about this that – or I, you know, I, th I think that's really the significant thing about this is that it has just been moving so quickly and people have been forced to revise longstanding positions almost overnight. And on the swift point, even the opposition leader in Germany, Friedrich Merz, was saying just a couple of weeks before Germany joined – the decision to push Russia out of SWIFT, at least partially, he was saying that would be the nuclear option and that the West shouldn't do that. And 
you know, it just seems that this is a pattern where as the situation on the ground in Ukraine worsens, and all you need to do is look at what's happened in Mariupol in the past days, politicians are willing to do things that would have been unthinkable just a few days previous. Another issue that's come to the fore again as a result of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine is the question of strategic autonomy, this idea that the European Union in particular should be, well, as the name suggests, more autonomous, more able to stand on its own two feet on the world stage. That partly has a defence component. It also has a kind of trade component, right, Barbara, in terms of the European Union adopting policy in which it would rely less on other parts of the world for some of the things it regards as strategic. Do you think that debate has shifted much? It's definitely shifting. I mean, we had, obviously, we had the pandemic, which has helped the proponents of strategic autonomy, most notably, of course, the French, to stress that, both when it come, especially when it comes to supply chains and trade, that we should have our own supply chains and not be so dependent of others. At that point, it was China. And now you see the same debate saying that, you know, we should move away from suppliers and make sure that Europe stands on its own. You do still have, and the European Commission, and especially EU Trade Chief uh, Valdis Dombrovskis, very much has a different view in the sense that he says, no, it only means that we should make sure that we diversify our supply chains and that we trade more with like-minded countries such as the US and, and others. So it doesn't per se needs to be that Europe has to become more protectionist, um, but just has to make sure that we have enough from different partners that we can actually rely on. Right. You have this, um, again, some some old camps emerging, although the lines may be shifting, but in terms of, of the kind of free traders, the more liberal economies who use the phrase open strategic autonomy rather than just strategic autonomy to try and emphasize the idea of remaining open to the world and not kind of building up walls around Europe. Where do you think it stands, uh, Matt, on the defense question? Obviously, we're recording on the eve of the NATO summit, uh, one of three summits in Brussels on Thursday. And again, I think, you know, once again, you can see a kind of philosophical debate here, right, on one side and the other. So each camp sees its view strengthened in terms of those who favor strategic autonomy when it comes to defense and those who don't. Yeah, I was thinking today, and I'm in the latter camp, I guess. Uh, I was thinking today, you know, how much time we've wasted over the past several years uh, sort of talking about this issue, which I always sort of thought was a bit of a distraction because when push comes to shove and we're seeing push come to shove now, the impulse is to make a straight line for the skirts of the United States. And and this is certainly what we've seen the Germans do. But I, I think the reality is if you look at the discussions, even in neutral countries in Europe now, in Sweden and Finland and even, even in Austria about you know, whether they should join NATO, I think that's an indication that strategic autonomy is pretty much dead. And that when it comes to security, the safest bet is to be as close as possible to the United States of America. Yeah, I, I mean, on the military front, I can partly disagree. But I think on the economic front, I think strategic autonomy has never been so alive as it is now. You see that in other parts of the world, the focus, the economic focus was much more inward. We had the Bi-American strategy, for example. Obviously, we had China. And 
the EU kept pushing to for more multilateralism, more open pol open trade policy, and now there is this more and more this realization that you know it's just not working, and so we have to start doing what others are doing and make sure that we have all these trade defense instruments that we can defend ourselves um, without going to the World Trade Organization, make sure that our supply chains within Europe are more robust, and. There is this frustration, especially post-Brexit, among the more Nordic, liberal, open trade countries that they're just losing the debate when it comes to the economics. So on that front, I would disagree. Right. I mean, I would say that the kind of the centre or the, if you like, the economic centre of gravity within the EU shifted with the departure of the UK. And if you like, you're seeing that accelerate to an extent through the crises that we've known in the past couple of years. You know, I guess, I guess, you know, the rhetoric is definitely in that direction. And now it's how much of this stuff is translated into policy. But I wanted, Barbara, finally, I mean, when we talk about the West and the possibility of the West kind of coming closer together, if you like, the Europeans and uh, the US, uh, we mustn't forget the UK, of course. Uh, you interviewed on stage at our Political 28 event last night, Maros Shevchevic, the European Commission's point man for Brexit and relations with the UK. Did you get the sense there that uh, Britain is being sort of welcomed into this fold or is there still uh, quite a lot of tension there? Both, to be honest. So definitely, I mean, the fact that they're working together on sanctions has helped to rebuild relations. At the same time, you still, and, and the EU ambassador to the UK said it explicitly, there is still a lack of trust when it comes to, for example, solving the issues on Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. And you clearly see that, for example, Joe Biden has been invited to the European Council this week. Boris Johnson has not. So it's still... They try to work together, but there is still some kind of tension hanging around in the air, especially because we resolved much of the trade issues with the US um, since Joe Biden has been elected, uh, whereas obviously with Johnson there are still a lot of key issues really to be resolved uh, when it comes to post-Brexit relationships. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. Barbara, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks to Matt and to Barbara for that conversation. European leaders are continuing to arrive here at the European Council in Brussels. You can probably hear some of the sirens as the motorcades arrive. There are also a few protesters with blue and yellow Ukrainian flags gathering near the building. But we'll take a short break and when we come back you'll hear from renowned Ukrainian novelist and thinker Andrei Kurkov. A message from SQM. SQM is an environmentally conscious lithium extraction company operating globally. Through a complex combination of data tracking and monitoring, as well as input from our team of highly skilled scientists and geologists, we can measure our impact on the local environment and community. Working closely with the UN-approved Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, IRMA, we are confident our operations will comply with ESG standards and due diligence requirements the EU is contemplating regarding the supply chain for sustainable batteries. Our green lithium supply will help the continent's manufacturers capture the demand created by the decarbonization of the automotive sector. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now I'm going to hand things over to Politico's David Herzenhorn to introduce this week's special guest. We're speaking with Andrei Kirkov, who's an acclaimed Ukrainian novelist and author of 19 books, numerous articles, and also a public thinker. He actually writes in Russian, and he gives a perfect window into how Ukraine has existed as a multilingual, multicultural society. He's going to talk to us about how culture itself has been a target in this war, how Ukrainians are managing uh, amid Putin's aggression. He's a resident of Kiev, the capital, had hoped to stay there uh, through the fighting, unfortunately has been forced to evacuate with part of his family, one of Ukraine's most eloquent voices. Maybe we can start by just asking how you are at the moment and what you've been, what you've been doing in recent days, because I know you're working very hard in support of Ukraine. Well, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I mean, I'm here with part of my family, with my wife and my elder son. So, I mean, today was sort of a routine day. I woke up at 6 and started writing. And then I took my son by car to the nearest border with Hungary, where he is helping the refugees. And I returned back. It's 40 minutes drive from border with Hungary. And I continued working until I had to go and to pick him up. And uh, one of the among the the many tragic aspects of this war, you've you've taken note of some of the cultural figures who have been killed. Tell us a little bit, maybe, if you could, about that. Well. I would say that actually the culture is one of the targets of Russian bombers. Not only buildings, uh, theaters, universities, schools, libraries, but also the representatives of culture. And this is actually a very sad repetition of Ukrainian history. I wanted to say that actually in the 1920s and 30s, there was a similar situation when the Soviet uh, NKVD people rounded up practically all writers and poets and they sent them first uh, to Gulag, to Solovki, an island uh, with a concentration camp in the north of Russia. And then all of them were shot dead. So, I mean, the whole generation of Ukrainian writers disappeared. And now in the school books, this generation is called the executed resurrection, because these people were trying to resurrect Ukrainian culture and literature, which was practically banned until... 1917. There were more than 40 decrees by different Tsars banning Ukrainian songs, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian books, etc. Maybe, Andre, can I ask you about, as you're someone who works in the study of human character and somebody who thinks about the human condition and your thoughts from a historical perspective, how history will look at this situation and what the West, the United States, uh, where I come from, or the EU, which I cover uh, here in Brussels, how will they be judged for what they have been willing to do and what they haven't done so far in response to uh, this war being waged by 
Putin and Putin's Russia? Well, I mean, I can see how actually this war was approaching. And uh, in this sense, Putin was many times encouraged to become more and more violent towards Ukraine by lack of response also from America during annexation of Crimea or from Europe during the beginning of the war in Donbass, even starting from the war in Georgia when on the 8th of August 2008, Putin actually moved his tanks into Georgian territory. There was also no response. So it was probably not pre-planned, but I mean, it, it was becoming more and more possible, this war. And actually, in the last two months, it became inevitable. And only then uh, Europe woke up and started uh, talking about serious sanctions and uh, switching off Russia from SWIFT, etc. And even then, Germany was and remains reluctant because Germany wants uh, to buy gas and oil, wants actually to keep Russia as huge market for German industries, etc. Regarding America, I'm very grateful to the United States because, I mean, their help is incredible and without it, I think uh, Ukraine would be probably already under siege in a more more dramatic way. But uh, Europe, I mean, Putin managed to split uh, Europe. Putin managed also to frighten NATO. And uh, it's obvious that NATO isn't going to send troops. Uh, but I mean, uh, NATO is so open that it doesn't want to irritate Russia. So obviously that NATO understood the message they received from Putin and they don't want to contradict Russia in this sense. They don't want Putin to start the nuclear war. Is it just that they're afraid, you think? Is that is that all that, it is, that they're afraid of nuclear war? In your view, what, what should they do? Should they be imposing a no-fly zone? Should they be willing to put soldiers on the ground? I mean, NATO is the alliance which is very inventive, creative and professional. And I'm sure there is not a single type of no-flying zone. I mean, there are lots of different operations or different sort of segments of military operations or military actions that can be taken without endangering the world. So, I mean, this, is, this lack of desire, I mean, just leaving Ukraine to fight against huge Russian army, although supplying not on behalf of NATO, but on behalf of separate countries, Ukraine with defensive weapons, but not given lethal weapons. Uh, I mean, it's it looks like uh, some kind of championship of box that, that actually, yes, we have good backup. We have fans. They are shouting, go ahead, go ahead, hit him. They, they, they are helping with some ammunition, etc. But at the same time, they, they, they are still there outside the ring when people are killed and when the cities are ruined. And they just sort of they become sad because, I mean, they, they are, their boxer is losing sometimes. Sometimes winning, then they smile. I mean, my sense is that, that he will take all of Ukraine or he will destroy it. But, but any sense that there is, you know, Donbass or more of Donbass or Crimea or any of this, that this will satisfy him in some way seems probably a trick. Well, I mean, you know, there is a famous classical theater play in Russia by Ostrovsky. It's called Bespridanitsa, A Bride Without Dowry. And in this play, the would-be bridegroom, who is rich, when he understands that actually she is not going to marry him, then he says, well, then you will not belong to anybody, and he kills her. I mean, this is Putin's behavior towards Ukraine. He didn't manage to 
buy it. He didn't manage to occupy it. He is destroying it and he is killing the civil population. He is destroying cities and villages. And he just wants to turn Ukraine into desert. And we've talked about this as someone you write professionally in Russian. You're born, if I recall, in, in Russia, in uh, what was then Leningrad. Yes, yes. That, um, I mean, among the lies that people have been told is that Russian language was under threat in Ukraine. Um, are there any of these lies that, that anger you more than others, or do they just all start to, to blend together at some point? I would say, I mean, the, what angers me, not only the lies about Russian language, because, I mean, Russian language is still spoken by almost half of the population. Yes, there are no schools which are teaching in Russian now because the only state language is Ukrainian. And actually, Ukrainian was destroyed by Russification purposely. To, it was removed to the margins. And now Ukraine is coming back to the territories where it used to be spoken. I mean, I publish my books in Russian and then they are translated into Ukrainian. And I'm not a, an only writer who writes in Russian. I mean, we, we are a multicultural country. But Russian language was turned by Putin into political instrument. And uh, his people used to repeat that Russia ends where nobody speaks or understands Russian, which means actually Russia ever ends because, I mean, Half of California speaks Russian, Berlin speaks Russian, and Paris speaks Russian. The youth in Ukraine is either bilingual or Ukrainian speaking, but also capable of understanding and speaking Russian. So, so there is no, no danger to Russian language culture, but I don't want Russian culture to come here, because, I mean, Russian culture is Putin's culture, and culture and Putin, I mean, these two words don't work together. Tell me, are you surprised, much of the world seems very surprised that Ukrainian forces are fighting back so hard, that they're still standing, that they're holding on. Are you yourself surprised by that? Well, uh, if I'm surprised, I'm less surprised than uh, anybody in Europe or in America, because I know that for Ukrainians, freedom is more important than stability and often more important than life. And the freedom of Ukrainians is possible only if Ukraine remains independent and free country. I mean, we don't have censorship. We have lots of problems, but we are used to solving these problems or living with these problems. And uh, I mean, what Ukrainian army is doing now, it just shows the difference between Russian mentality and Ukrainian mentality. For Ukrainians, the personal opinion, personal freedoms are priority. For Russians, stability is more important than freedom. Are there things that you would like to see, even the United States, which I know you said you're, you're grateful, or the Western, the things you would like to see them do in the days ahead? We're expecting, of course, a, a visit by Biden to Brussels, to NATO, a NATO summit, a European Council summit. Thoughts on your mind about what are, the, what are the things that they could do now, given where we are almost one month into this war? Well, I, I think if America continues to support Ukrainian army, it will be extremely important. We need probably more help for Ukrainian refugees and there are already at least three or four million of them in, in Europe. I also want actually, but it, I mean, it's not a political request. It's more cultural and social request. I want American University to introduce courses of Ukrainian history and maybe of Ukrainian literature and culture in order to uh, make it more understandable and uh, accessible for students and for anybody who is interested because Many people know a lot about Russian history and Russia and Russian politics, but they don't know anything about Ukraine and cannot uh, really differentiate 
between Russia and Ukraine, and Russia is using this lack of knowledge. Russia is saying that Ukrainian history is Russian history, a part of Russian history, which is also a total lie. So, I mean, this sort of humanitarian action, I mean, university courses, books about Ukrainian history, maybe lectures, that would be a great help for the future. And then Ukrainians will not be strangers. Well, thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak with us on EU Confidential. And we'll stay in touch, of course, in the days ahead. Andrei Kirchhoff, really a pleasure always to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks to David for bringing us that discussion. To catch up with the latest news on all of Thursday's summits, be sure to head to our website, politico.eu. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please be sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. And remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Noah Zan and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.